today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It's legalization eve. That's Liz. Way to go, Liz. Uh, legalization eve. Cannabis becomes legal tomorrow. Uh, we're going to play you some clips. The first one from the Prime Minister on all of this. Uh, we're going to be working on that, uh, as I said, as soon as, the, uh, as soon as the day of legalization comes into force. So we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about that uh, in, the, uh, in the coming days and weeks. Uh, sorry, I should have uh, queued that up a bit better. That was in, re- in uh, people asking questions in regard to pardons, uh, if you had already been charged with a small amount of possession and such. Uh, and obviously that is something that uh, NDP leader uh, Jagmeet Singh has also talked about. We should absolutely move ahead, and I think we should absolutely immediately delete the records for everyone that's been convicted of personal possession so they don't continue to be punished for something that's now legal. All right, uh, let's bring in Brian uh, Althide. He is with the Green Organic Dutchman Holdings Limited. You might remember, I believe, they were in the news locally because are a local grower and applying for uh, a larger footprint. Brian is with us now. Brian, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the Green Organic Dutchman and what that's, that operation is all about. So actually, we, the company started in Hamilton at the farm there in Ancaster. We are a certified organic cannabis producer, one of only three licensed uh, producers in Canada that are certified for organic. These are growing in real living soil. We don't use any synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides, so you have really clean, high-quality, premium product. Um, we're building out our facility in Hamilton. We're also building another one just outside of Montreal. Um, and uh, we're, we've got uh, very, very clear global expansion aspirations. We've acquired a company in Poland recently, uh, which is industrial hemp-based uh, CBD oils that is being sold across Europe, as well as have entered into, uh, uh, purchased a half of a company in Jamaica, um, focused on, on Latin America, and actually just uh, started a joint venture in Mexico as well. So a Hamilton-based company or originated company that, that is expanding globally And our goal is to be the largest organic cannabis brand globally, um, focused on 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 both medical markets, um, where where there is legal medical markets, and then in recreational markets as they open up. And and Canada is the first um, G7 country to open up its recreational market tomorrow, which is super exciting. So uh, this started out as a medical facility and then just grew from there? Um, that, that, that's correct. I mean, really, you've only had, in terms of, of the legal um, LPs, yeah. um, or have only been medical to date. So, I mean, tomorrow with the opening of the adult use market, it, it's growing from there. In fact, I mean, in Canada, though, I mean, we're still building out our facilities. So the current facility we have in Hamilton has been used uh, more just for R&D and for breeding to date. Um, we'll have the construction completed um, at the end of this calendar year, and so we'll start cultivating in there, and we'll be launching in the medical market across Canada starting in January and then be expanding throughout 19. Um, by the time we get to the end of 19, we'll have capacity of around 170,000 kilos. I remember um, talking to producers way back when, when the whole medical thing started, and I remember at that point saying uh, to, and, and it wasn't yourself, it was one of the other ones saying, you know, wow, you've got a, a, a quite a great template in place now if this ever goes recreational. And at that point, this was way back when, in the, when this was all in its infancy, I remember them saying, oh, no, no, we're not even considering that. We're like, you know, ba 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 And then, of course, once the discussion moved to recreational, that's exactly... 
what has happened. Do you, did, did you realize when this was starting way back when that we would get to where we are today? Uh, I, I probably wasn't involved in the industry back then. Um, so I joined in March, but uh, I, I think, I mean, it makes so much sense to legalize um, the adult use market. The market already exists today. I mean, Deloitte's estimate of the market size is about $6.5 going to grow to 8 to $9 billion with legalization. So by legalizing it, you're ensuring that you have better and consistent quality. You've got legitimate employment and a tax base, reducing crime and, and just other related stigmatisms. So, I mean, legalization make, makes a ton of sense. And, and, in fact, I mean, the... The recreational market in Canada, we expect, will, will be much bigger than the medical market. The medical market is still important and will continue to exist. The products are very similar across both. Um, but, I mean, in our estimation, I mean, the recreational market will, will be about nine times bigger than the medical market um, in Canada. Though, I mean, as we expand globally, um, you, what you'll have is medical markets uh, throughout Europe and, and uh, Latin America, parts of Asia, and those will all be sizable markets. It's amazing how this is, for Canadians, a Canadian issue, but as business people and entrepreneurs, this is very much a worldwide, uh, a, a, a global event for, for this industry. What are your thoughts on distribution in Ontario? But being a global company, does, does distribution really matter to you since everybody's doing it differently, I guess? Um, distribution definitely matters. Um, in fact, I mean, the changes in Ontario moving away from a government-run retail structure to private, we believe, is actually a positive <coughs> development. And, I mean, the government will still be the wholesale of record and, and get their wholesale markups, and, and, and the government is probably the biggest financial um, winner of the whole legalization. But in terms of having private retail, um, it'll be much more competitive. They'll they'll um, use normal kind of retail practices. I think you'll end up with more retail locations, so have better accessibility. And really, if if one of the goals is to eliminate the black or gray markets, it's important that that you have good accessibility to products for consumers, that they can find it, find products that they can trust, um, that's reliable, that has the proper testing, has ha- does not have use of of a lot of the harmful chemical pesticides that you find in the black market or in the gray market um, and, and have much more reliability and consistency. So having that, that broader accessibility, I believe, is, is going to be very important, and, and that's what Ontario has chosen to do. Um, it's not going to be there tomorrow um, and not until next April, um, which, which is a bit unfortunate from a timing standpoint, but at least they want to get it right, and I think that's a good thing. And from our perspective, um, we're actually not selling tomorrow because our Canadian facilities aren't up and running yet. Um, so we will be be there um, for, for when you do have that retail environment in Ontario. How does that work for you as a grower? What happens, obviously you said tomorrow you won't be up and running for that, but when that, when that does happen, how does this all work? I mean, obviously uh, the customer goes through the internet and so on and so forth, but how do you get your product to where it needs to be? So it's different for medical versus the adult use recreational market. So for medical patients, they get a a prescription from their doctor, and then they come to any licensed producer, including ourselves, and we all have uh, e-commerce sites, and basically they order the type of product they want. It goes through Canada Post and gets delivered to their house. They sign for it, or if they're not home, they go to the post office and sign for it. So that's medical patients that buy directly from licensed producers. For the adult use recreational market, it's a bit different. In, 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 every, in every province, the government is the wholesaler of record. So in Ontario, we'd be selling to the Ontario government, um, to the Ontario Cannabis Store. 
um, and then they would sell it on to different retailers, private retailers, whether they be independents or chains. It varies, I mean, province by province. In, in uh, Alberta, it's also a private model. The government's the wholesaler of records, so we sell to the Alberta um, the, the, the Liquor and, and, and Cannabis Commission. They, they, they then, then turn sell to the retailers. In BC, it's a bit of a hybrid where you'll have government stores and private stores. On the other hand, you've got kind of provinces like Quebec, which is fully government-owned retail. So they're the wholesaler and retailer of record. Um, so we're selling through that government network. So it varies um, province by province. And I can tell you, I mean, as you look globally, um, every country has its own kind of nuances and rules. And it's important to, to work through each one of those um, separately and figure out how best to, to do business legitimately and legally there. Uh, and produ- that's what we're focused on. In, Can- in Canada, producers aren't, aren't allowed to sell and, and be involved in chain uh, outlets and such. Is that a good idea, similar to alcohol? Um, I, I believe, I'm, I think every company has its own strategy. For us, because we are the only organic player of, of this kind of scale, our goal is to not be a retailer where we're, we're competing with all of the other retail chains. And really, we want to be the organic brand of, of every retailer. Um, so we don't have a retail strategy um, in terms of a broad-scale retail plan. I know some of the other bigger um, LPs do plan to have large retail chains, and I, I think that, that's great for them. Um, I mean, there, there, it's just a different type of a strategy, and, and both, both have its merits. Uh, why the organic route for you guys? Is this very similar to uh, organic foods, this sort of thing? It, it is. I mean, we've done um, a lot of consumer work on organic, and the concept really resonates with consumer. In fact, uh, Hill and Knowlton did a study earlier this year of consumers across Canada and found that 57% of medical patients would prefer organic and 43% of recreational consumers would prefer organic. Now, that said, when they go to the shelf, even though they know there's a premium and they see the premium, that same percentage may, may not be willing to purchase because the premium for organic um, in, currently commands is about 30% in cannabis. But even if, if you only have 20 to 30 or 20, 25% of the market um, being organic, similar to what you have in produce or other kind of food categories, that's still a sizable market that we're... We're, we're laser focused on. We don't want to be everything to everyone. We're going after that premium um, organic consumer who's looking for for a healthier product, healthier lifestyle, and um, make sure we we serve their needs better than anybody else by having the best product format, by having the best product delivery, the best quality. In fact, I mean we're spending a lot on R and D because really this is not about cultivation um, longer term. Although we're spending a lot of money on these facilities, it's really about having the best consumer brand. Um, which which has the best product delivery. So we're investing a lot in R&D to deliver that, but we're also not waiting until that. Our team has gone out there and spent a lot of time going through U.S. states that have been legal for much longer on the recreational side, understanding what are the winning brands and what are the winning technologies that's, that's making them win, and, and licensing those technologies. Because you've got the, some of the greatest entrepreneurs and, and best products in the U.S., but they're handcuffed because they don't have a federal legalization, their product can't leave their state, let alone their country. So what we've done is we've gotten exclusive rights to those technologies for Canada and international markets. And that's how we believe we'll have the best products and brands because those are are winning solutions, winning technologies already proven in market. So I mean, some examples of that are um, with uh, Evo Labs has the number one and number three selling vape in the Colorado market. Um, They've they've got some incredible... um, 
technology is there that it's all plant-based. Um, they don't use any synthetic uh, cutting agents in, in their cartridges. Another one is CVX Sciences. Um, they've got some great skin creams, topical CBD infused or also THC products, um, which, which are great products that, that do very well. Or another one is with Stillwater. Um, they have a, a, they sell some, they're in Colorado, they have teas and coffees that are infused with, with THC or CBD, but they have a product called Ripple, which is basically a sachet of water-soluble cannabinoids, whether it's THC or CBD or a combination of them. You can you rip it open, you can put it into any beverage, and it dissolves instantly. Um, so all of a sudden, you can have a drink that with, with THC that has a similar effect to alcohol, but it doesn't have any calories, there's no risk of hangover, it's easier on your body and your liver as it gets absorbed. Um, so it's, it's a, a big disruptor for beverage alcohol, and that's why you see companies like Constellation investing yeah. in Canopy. But there's another whole big market even beyond that, if you think on the CBD side, where you can have um, pre- or post-workout drinks, sports recovery drinks, vitamin waters, um, organic juices that, that aren't designed to get you high, but have a lot of medicinal benefits and, and a lot of um, other kind of properties like that, like similar to nutraceuticals, that um, can be a huge, huge market by themselves. So we're focused on on both sides of, of that uh, with, with these technologies. It's amazing how expansive this product line could be. I mean, you're talking about things I don't think anybody even really thinks about. Uh, you know, everybody's thinking no, about... No, they're, they're all huge. I mean, you've, you've got, I mean, pharmaceutical kind of products. If you think about uh, opioids, they're talking about marijuana now being an exit drug. Well, it used to be called a gateway drug, right? Um, mm. To nutraceuticals, to pet health care products. Um, for, for older pets, or even if you think about racehorses that suffer anxiety when being transported, um, to edibles, there's, I mean, looking at, even in the, in the current gray market, you find lots of edibles and beverages. Beverages we put at the top of the pyramid in terms of the highest value added, just because it eats the consumption and the speed of consumption as well. If someone is smoking or vaping, you basically feel it within a minute or two, kind of instant gratification, but with edibles, it takes much longer. It can be an hour or two or even three hours before you start feeling it. With beverages, if you've got something that's truly water-soluble, um, like the, the still water technology that we've got the license rights for, um, it's got an onset within 15 minutes and an offset within a couple hours. So very quickly, it's, it's similar to having a, a beer or a glass of wine, hmm. right? Um, and so that is breakthrough. So in terms of market size that you mentioned, I mean, globally, I've heard estimates that the total market potential could be $500 billion, like half a trillion. Um, that's a huge market potential. And, and Canada's in the lead here. I mean, with the legalization tomorrow, the first G7 country to do so for, for adult use, um, all of the, the biggest cannabis companies are Canadian. And um, I mean, that's what brought me to this industry, where I mean, never in, in, in my career have I seen an opportunity, at least in business, leaving aside kind of hockey or, or ice line or things like that, right. where, where Canada's got a lead globally. And uh, patriotic pride, we should be very proud of that. Um, we're helping people. This, this really is... And I think you'll see a lot of stigmatisms falling away. This isn't about kind of the old stoner culture. It's, it's about medicine and it's about um, ha- ha- making people better, and even on the recreational side, healthier alternatives to, to other types of consumption, um, like, like beverage alcohol or, or tobacco. Uh, in the decades ahead, how will we look back at the date October 17th? How significant is it or will it be? It will be similar to um, the end of prohibition, prohibition yeah. on alcohol. It, it's exact, it will be very, very similar to that. What about insurance companies and, and things like that? It, it seems that they're, you know, until there's more research and stuff, they're, they're a little bit more reluctant to jump on board. What about that in, in other health agencies? 
Well, I think insurance companies will get on board. You see some now starting to cover it for employee benefits. Even um, Veterans Affairs um, covers a certain amount for, for cannabis use on the medicinal side. Um, I mean, insurance companies tend to be the most risk-averse people in the world, right? And so if you think about some of the other issues that they're facing with op- the opioid crisis, there's hundreds of people dying each and every day from opioids overdose. Um, alcohol poisoning is a, is a serious issue that people can die from. There's not been a single case anywhere in the world where someone has died from uh, a marijuana uh, overdose, if you can even call it that. Usually a bad experience means someone really kind of falls asleep, or in the worst case, they, they may feel kind of um, paranoid or something like that. You haven't had the same kind of physical issues that you have from opioids or, or alcohol, which can kill. So um, from insurance companies, I, I think the, the, the problem is there's been a lot of stigmatisms against the industry, and so there hasn't been a lot of clinical work that's been done. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that's come out of the black and gray market. Um, but now with legalization, there's a lot of money going into R&D, going into studies, consumer studies, clinical studies. Um, I think over time you'll find a lot more research and a lot more papers come out which, which talk about all the different right. benefits and, and the alternatives and, and the side effects versus other alternatives. Brian Athide has been with us, the Green Organic Dutchman Holdings Limited, uh, right here in Hamilton and, of course, uh, going worldwide on the eve of legalization. Brian, thanks for the time, and, of course, uh, good luck as the company moves forward. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is uh, strange, and this is why you never have an affair. (laughs) Because long after the fun is over... You've still got to clean up the mess. And what I'm talking about here is, of course, uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, her hubby Bill and way back when the Monica Lewinsky case. Uh, And then, of course, it coming back into play with the whole Me Too movement. Here is what Hillary had to say on CBS in regard to whether Bill's affair was an abuse of power. In retrospect, do you think... Bill should have resigned in the wake of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Absolutely not. It wasn't an abuse of power? No, no. There are people who look at the incidents of the 90s and they say a president of the United States cannot have a consensual relationship with an intern. The power imbalance is too great. Who was an adult. But let me ask you this. Where's the investigation of the current incumbent? All right, and then that report, of course, originating with uh, CNN. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, of course, uh, PR, Alyssa Freeman, PR, pop culture expert and all that sort of stuff. She's with us now. Alyssa, how are you? Oh, I'm fine today, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, how do you make, how do you determine abuse of power? What's an abuse of power? What isn't an abuse of power? How do you make that determination? Well, in this case, it depends who your wife is. <laughs> All right. And how good she is. You go ahead and explain that, Alyssa. Because, okay, I am going to go ahead and explain that because that was a textbook deflect. It was a block and a bridge. That's what, that's what us PR pros call it. Sounds and like I'm, a football play, man. Boom, well, boom. It, well, boom, boom is right. And, and look how boom, boom she did. So, what happened here is that they uh, interviewed her 60 Minutes. They asked Hillary Clinton the question, and she knew it was coming, and they had prepared her for it. So, first of all, you media train your client. And I don't think Hillary Clinton is, uh, you know, I think that she would accept any sort of media training to make sure that she is on point and sharp in her questioning and her answering. So that is key. 
you know, I always want to give CEOs or C-suite executives media training. They're like, "Ah, I know, I already know how to talk to the media. Guess what? You don't. When those lights go on and that reporter sits in front of you and the toughest ones all work for 60 minutes, you better be prepared. So she was waiting for the question, and the question was, and who knows, may even submitted those questions earlier to get her on. But uh, the question was, do you think your husband should have been impeached? And when you want to definitively uh, answer a question with the answer no, the phrase is absolutely not. And that's exactly what came out of her mouth. And then, so that's the block. The bridge was... He, you know, he was exonerated. There was an investigation, yet we have a sitting president. And where are the investigations into all of his, mm. his uh, dalliances with other women that he has uh, defiled, that he has um, talked uh, down to? And there has been no investigation. So why don't we start concentrating on that? And then, you know, as a reporter, you know, you're, you're like, okay, I, this is a dead horse. and I'm not going to beat it. Is the question still fair game? The question is absolutely fair game, especially since the Clintons are now going to go on a what could be a North American and or international roadshow. So it's going to come up. Did you do you think she would have been uh, told this ahead of time that we were go- that they were going to go there? Or do you think they blindsided her? No, absolutely not blindsided. Hillary Clinton is savvy enough and has faced down worse. So, you know, when she had to do her Senate committee hearing, you know, they were comparing her demeanor to uh, Justice Brett, Brett Kavanaugh's. And, you know, the, the comparisons were very, very markedly different. You have Justin, Justice Kavanaugh wailing away and Hillary Clinton looking at them stone-faced going, give me your next question. So she's fairly unflappable, Scott. You really have to dig up something absolutely dirty for her to lose her cool. So she's very good at that. She's obviously got a good team behind her that are, are telling her what to, how to react, just as you're suggesting. That being said, is are, are Americans buying that? Uh, again, no one's going to deny everything she's saying about Bill Clinton, but that does that get him off? Does that get Bill, uh, sorry, Donald Trump, does that get Bill Clinton off? Well, you know, um, first of all, that ship has sailed, so nobody is, is going to go back. I mean, they could, I guess. But they I just they did. Fail. I mean, they, they're doing, they're still, every time they ask this question, yeah, they're, they're going back. prosecute him again. I mean, they're, no. you know, he's, he's, he's now being tried in the court of public opinion. So. But let me ask you this, Alyssa, who cares about a prosecution, uh, whether that happens or not? The question will still keep coming up. Is it a abuse of power, which is very similar to these other cases? Well, you know what? Yes, it is an abuse of power. Um, it is, and it was. And Why doesn't she just admit that? Well, because, in, no, because he was, he, you, she can't. In her eyes, she cannot, because she still stands by her man, number one. Uh, number two, they've been partners for life. Who knows what goes on in their personal lives, but mm-hmm. they are business partners for life. So she is as tied into him as he is into her. Right. You know, the other point that you should also make is that what happened? Okay, so remember when Bill was um, Bill Clinton was promoting his book? Uh, it was a co-written book. Yep. I think it was sort of a mystery. Yep. Uh, and they asked him the question. He lost it. Yeah, he lost his cool. And you saw like what was sort of a hail fellow well met. Absolutely, look at you with daggers. So if anybody's going to take that question, it's going to be her. Uh, 
as you said, though, it's going to keep coming up. Does it have mileage? Does do at what point do people say enough's enough, or is the political divisiveness enough such that uh, this is going to keep coming up, and you can't, you know, the pot can't call the kettle black. Well, exactly. Can you talk out of both sides of your mouth on this one? And it seems that there's one set of rules for for some people, and there's a whole other set of rules for Bill Clinton. You know, if you're a Clinton Democrat, and I kind of emphasize that, because if you're a Democrat, doesn't mean that you are for Bill Clinton or Hillary, for that matter. If you're a Clinton Democrat, this ship has sailed and just move on because we're not there anymore. Um, and there was one particular Democrat, I believe it was Senator Kristen Gillibrand, who said, you know, uh, you know, he did what he did. We should really sort of relook at that, of which, you know, I don't know how much support she had for that uh, within her own party. Um, you know, it's really a tough one because you can't say, well, you know, let's decry this behavior today, even though my husband was guilty of it, you know, 20 odd years I ago. I don't think she can say anything on it. Because, again, how every person from in the past or the future that's going to be accused of bad behavior 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago could all say that ship has sailed. That's not, well, that, I don't think that argument cuts it. I mean, you know, Kavanaugh could have said that ship has sailed. Yeah, but look at what, look what the first few words in his opening sentence were. That they felt that he felt that his vilification, or he was told to say, um, his vilification was uh, on the part of those Democrats who were still angry about Hillary Clinton. So all these years ago, you know, they're willing to, you know, go down that Clinton route as a way of uh, a way out in terms of messaging. So I don't think that that is ever going to go away. And and plus, you know, Scott, when you keep yourself in the public eye, Mm. there's one thing to sort of go into the, you know, away from the public eye. You know, you raise money with your Clinton Foundation. You do your good work. You already have your Clinton library. And then you go and write a memoir or two or three or four. But the Clintons haven't haven't done that. And I and I truly believe that they feel that they have something to say that can help sway uh, people and create more resonance for the Democratic Party, as well as keep them in the public, keep both of them in the public eye. And I think that there were many people that wished the Clintons would just go away. That was my next point to you, absolutely. Yeah, and let the Democrats, you know... Where's the next generation? Yeah, well, you know what, Scott, where is it? Who is speaking on behalf of the Democrats? Is it Elizabeth Warren, who just decided, you know, to do a 23andMe, uh, you know, spit test and find out that she is sort of one (laughs) one-hundredth of one-hundredth of one-hundredth, you know, Native American? So you know who is no that? wait a right sec now, by calling it wait a sec by calling it a spit test are you are you taking credibility away from this woman? No, I'm not. But I mean, it, you know, listen, I was watching Megyn Kelly today, and you never, you know, ever since Megyn Kelly started on NBC, she's become definitely more Democratic than she has Republican. But today, she had her Fox Newsiness on and was like dumping all over Elizabeth Warren. So uh, you know, the point is there is a void of voices. Who is the voice leading the Democratic Party? Is it Cory Booker? I don't know. Is it Elizabeth Warren? I don't know. Well, really, there isn't anybody. So you know what? In this void of Democratic voices, who's going to set the tone and the narrative? The Clintons have decided they're going to do that. Yeah, because there's no one else in the room, apparently. Uh, Again, I'm looking at this headline here, and Hillary Clinton said that Bill's affair with an intern in her 20s wasn't an abuse of power. Let me ask you this question. Does this headline 
keep this issue alive. Uh, no matter how far we go away from the episode between Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton, the Me Too movement is so fresh. This is just another example of it, whether it's Cosby, whether it's Trump, whether it's this, that, or the other. And, you know, obviously the severity, completely different, but it's the same thing. So will the, will the, uh, the fact that she said it wasn't an abuse of power, won't that give it even more legs in the Me Too movement era? Well, she didn't say that. She said absolutely not. She didn't repeat the charge. Right. So that's Which another is another good PR move. There you go. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, you're learning. I am. But yes. You course. should be charging me for these. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's another. Yeah. <laughs> Alyssa's like, click. <laughs> yeah. No, Alyssa's like getting an invoice ready. That's no, right. Yeah, there you go. Um, y- you know, she first of all, she did not say that. The second point I want to make is that when I did the Google search on this, to read up in the article, the first thing I see is, well, or think or go to look for is how, what are the legs this, that this statement had? So I go into Google and I type in, you know, Hillary Clinton and Bill and two articles show up. CBS, which makes sense because 60 Minutes is on CBS. So naturally they would report on what fell out of that interview and the Daily Mail in England. And that was it. That was it, Scott. That's that Democrat influence or bias in the U.S. media, isn't it, Alyssa? That certainly could. I mean, I didn't see any Breitbart when I went to go look for it, but I don't usually go looking for Breitbart, but maybe I should have. So, but, you know, be that as it may, you know, it did not show up in the role of, you know, Google News. So no one cares about Bill anymore. Well, I guess they, some of the Democratic, more more Democratic-leaning media feel that, yeah, that ship has sailed and okay, bye. Or is it the extent, uh, uh, the extremity of these uh, uh, allegations or or faults in the sense that, well, this is all we have on Bill. We got a ton of stuff on the other guys. You know, or if you just do it once, that's enough. Because the ton of stuff on the other guy, which would normally have brought him down 20 years ago, nobody seems to care about. You know, you've got hookers coming out of the woodwork. You have really good evidence about... um, Donald Trump's past infidelities. And does anybody care? No. no. Do any the, the Republicans care? Well, of course they didn't care because they don't care about women. That's my personal bias. But, you know, when you put in Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who lied under oath about the, you know, the true meaning of the content of his um, yearbook, uh, his, his yearbook statement, you know, do they care about women? No. Republicans aren't that concerned about, concerned about women. They still have a 1950s ideal of, you know, stay in the kitchen with an apron and please have dinner ready when I walk through the door. Um, we, I only saw egg, uh, excerpts of the 60 Minutes interview. Um, the Stormy Daniels charge has been dismissed. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly has NAFTA on his side when he's speaking to his base. Is Donald on... on is the tide turning for Donald? Where are we, do you think, with well, his with you know, his progress if, as president? If you think like two weeks ago, you know, the Democrats had high hopes of taking both the Senate and the House. Now I would say that they don't have any high hopes of taking the Senate, but maybe they do have of the House. The three big races that you have to look at at the Senate are essentially all in Trump territory. Oh, excuse me. I've never sneezed on your show before. <laughs> A lot of people are allergic to me, Alyssa. Don't worry about that. Or else, as my mother would say, you sneeze the truth. (laughs) Let's go go with that one. But, uh, but, you know, uh, and and so this Kavanaugh issue has basically ignited both sides of of, of America. 
Democrats who are in sense, and Republicans are going, don't tell us what we can do or we don't do. Don't be so judgmental. So whereas some of this, people looked at the midterms as, you know, November is coming, the big blue wave, some of that optimism is now in doubt. And if you notice, I mean, I have never seen an administration so, like, much so adept at turning the channel in terms of the news cycle. It is amazing. It is amazing, isn't it? Like, you think last time we were talking about Kanye West, it's like it's impossible to keep up with this. And each one is, is like the first hill of a roller coaster. Well, so, for example, yes, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, let's get that off the front pages. Let's do something absolutely crazy. I know, let's invite Kanye West. Sure. Okay. And so they invite Kanye West. And during that whole time, you know, Trump has been doing campaign stop over campaign stop over campaign stop. Is the news going to cover those campaign stops? Of course they are. So what's filling the news? The the news is being absolutely, the pipeline is absolutely being filled by, um, you know, the the West Wing or Trump's uh, office. And the news media is covering it. And therefore, you know, we're not that worried about Justice Kavanaugh anymore. We're looking at, you know, Trump's antics during his latest rally. Have the Democrats fallen into the Donald Trump trap of uh, distraction? It almost reminds me of, you know, uh, geese trying to pull a retriever into the water and getting him to swim around in circles till he drowns. Have the Democrats fallen for that in the sense that they're spending so much time fighting the the propaganda and rhetoric from Trump that they don't even have anybody in the wings that's, that's being dusted off to take this guy on in the next election? You know, well, there is, but I think that what they've been doing, from what I see from my armchair, is that they've been really working grassroots and getting people, you know, voter registration and then getting, you know, good people to run and really working on the midterms on a very grassroots level rather than worrying about sort of a national narrative. So, you know, you're not going to win the House and the Senate by having a national narrative. You're probably going to win it by being very, very grassroots. And that's the big mistake that they made last time when Hillary was running. Um, you know, so that being said, you know, there is no one cohesive voice, but it's interesting, you know, because we get the Buffalo uh, ads in and, you know, when they're talking about their Democratic uh, opponents, Republicans are saying, this person called our president a bad name, this person doesn't respect the presidency, and if that's the type of opponent (laughs) you want, well, then I don't think you do, you should vote for me. So Is Kanye West voicing that spot? No, no, no. <laughs> that was like him standing up and saying, you know, we should not be making fun of the president this way or, or presenting him this way. It's like he presents well, the way he does. you know what? He speaks for the base, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that being said, as, uh, as the Democrats move forward into the next election, are we going to see like a, a, an old stalwart like a Biden or a Hillary or um, – a Bernie Sanders, or, or is there going to be an up-and-comer there? Wow. I mean, okay, so if it's an old stalwart, yes, it could be Biden. It could be Elizabeth Warden, uh, Warren. Um, some people are also floating the name Michael Avenatti, who is Stormy Daniels' oh, uh, man. lawyer. Man, that, doesn't that is, exempt him right there, no matter how good he is or great yeah, he is? He's Stormy thing, Daniels' lawyer. Do we I want mean, him in there? I was, well, look what we have there now, Scott. That's no excuse. That's no excuse to give the next one a pass. Maybe that's what the Times are saying. However, um, I was watching uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, and he was interviewing Steve Bannon. And he said, you know, who's the one Democrat that scares you? And they said, you know, Bernie was good, but he didn't have a fearlessness. He did not have that fearlessness. There's only one guy that really 
has that fearlessness, and that's Michael Avenatti. And whether he's seeding that into people's minds or, you know, whether that's their, um, that's his M.O. of changing the channel, then uh, who knows? But I told you my kids. What about, the, what about uh, the situation with Senator Elizabeth Warren and the whole thing around the DNA testing? I mean, there he goes again off on a tangent. She did the spit test, as you put it. Is this, you know, here's another thing. Oh, my goodness. If any other politician did it, they would be gone. Is this just another Teflon Don moment? It's just another Teflon Don moment. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, PR and pop culture expert principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. And thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Two MPPs are tabling bills that aim to end postal code discrimination when it comes to auto insurance. What does this mean? Will it affect rates? Let's bring in Peter Georges, Director of Consumer and Industry Relations, Insurance Bureau of Canada, and with us now. Peter, it's like you're almost becoming a regular on the show now. I know, Scott. I'm going to need my own nameplate and seat. That's it. That's it. Uh, you get your insurance advice here. All right. How do uh, insurance companies arrive at the rates that we pay for car insurance? Quite simply, uh, there are factors that are set out by the uh, government regulator, which is the Financial Services Commission. They're an arm-length agency, and they set various um, factors that insurance companies can use. So there's things along the lines of personal profile. So it's the type of vehicle you drive, your driving record, how much driving you do, um, also... uh, your age, where you live. And so where you live impacts rates as well, because as they, um, uh, Fisco states on their website, auto insurance rates are generally higher in larger urban centers. uh, And because of uh, increase in in vehicles on the road, uh, chances of getting into an accident are higher. And also more vehicles are stolen, it says, in urban centers. And so it really is a data issue. And so Insurance companies have to follow, because we're so heavily regulated, have to follow uh, the parameters that are set out by the Financial Services Commission when they submit their rates. So uh, where, and that centers around the issue that's being brought up by these MPs, so or MPPs rather, so yeah. where you live obviously does play a factor in all of this. That's right, because there are certain areas, as, as, as the data show, that have higher number of claims and a higher cost of claims. So we look at that as, from the insurance standpoint, claims frequency and severity. So if you have more claims and those claims cost more, then ultimately it's going to be reflected in the price. It's kind of like any business, uh, how any business operates. They look at what their underlying costs are, and then they set the price that they're going to charge customers and factor in that they want to continue to operate. So, you know, in addition to their costs, uh, there's a little bit in there for profit too. All businesses operate on that same uh, same threshold, as do insurance companies. So, the, uh, and just to make a blanket statement, then usually the bigger cities, the bigger towns, where there's more cars on the road, where there's more drivers, where there's more activity, obviously there's a more a greater chance of accident. Therefore, those rates would be higher. That's correct. That's correct. And, it, and so, is the, is there any <laughs> other factor other than? Uh, a bigger like is there examples of this where um, you know the rates are high in a smaller center? It really doesn't have anything to do with this, but for some reason the rates are are, are higher in that in that area, or the accident rate is higher. Well, you know, and again, 
what the underlying reasons are um, can be open for discussion. If, if we're talking about the specific um, situations that have been highlighted by these two MPPs in, in northwest Toronto, which is Brampton or that area there, we look at industry data, and that is data that's collected by a body called the General Insurance Statistical Agency. It's a uh, regulator-controlled organization, and that data is the same data the government uses. So when we look at that data and break it down for an area example, such as Brampton, which seems to be the hot spot here that these MPPs are, are focused on, you look at the average number of claims, and we see that claims are made 9% more often in Brampton than the rest of the GTA. Mm. And actually, are you sitting down for this, 22.9% mm. more frequently than the rest of Ontario. Wow. And then when you factor in... So that's significant. In, that's significant. And then when you factor in the average claim size, or the, the payout amounts, they are 8.7% larger in Brampton than the rest of the GTA. And, uh, you know, here, here again is the concerning point, is it's 26.3% larger uh, claim sizes than anywhere else in Ontario. So you've got substantially more claims than the rest of the province, and those claims are costing more. So at the end of the day, the rates that people are paying are going to be reflecting those figures. So this is really, e even to use the analogy, more cars, bigger city, more activity, it really does come down to claims. Whoever makes the, whatever area makes the most claims or has the most cost in claims is going to pay more for insurance. Uh, it, it simply is the data. And, and that's what the data shows. And, and companies are obligated to use their data when they go and, and request rate adjustments. And, and the problem is with the current system, and I think part of what these MPPs are highlighting too, is a challenge that we see because the current regulations that we have in place, they're stale, they're outdated. We need to modernize uh, the regulations. So these MPPs have a point? They have a point in the sense that, yeah, we, we've got regulations on the books now that, that have been on the books for a long time. Um, you know, Ontarians uh, deserve an auto insurance system that works for them uh, and something that is modern, up-to-date, and requires changes in the regulations, and we encourage that. We support that. Uh, we've been saying that to MPPs uh, for a while now as an industry trade association on behalf of our members. We've had meetings with MPPs from all political parties and highlighted for them that there are challenges in the system that need to be fixed. Uh, the government, the last government, had a report commission that, that talks about fair benefits fairly delivered, and that report is still sitting on a shelf. And that report calls on making changes to the auto insurance system. Rather than just tinkering, we need to make some substantive changes. So hopefully this will lead the call for, for the new government now uh, to, to make some positive changes for drivers. You used the example of Brampton where there's 22.9% more claims. What if you're a great driver in Brampton and you don't have any claims? Should you be penalized? Well, and, and this is the problem that exists right now, is that these regulations that exist um, really uh, do not allow flexibility in the system. And, and by that I mean uh, there are 55 territories that the province can get divided into. And so within those requirements, there are other stipulations that force insurers to perhaps create groupings because we all pay in uh, our premiums and then from those premiums the claims amounts are paid back out to those people who need to make a claim uh, and we get grouped based on as you saw as I mentioned here where you live so 
artificially what happens with the current and, and the outdated system is insurance companies have to use territories that are coterminous, that have a certain number of policies within them. So by that, uh, it, it perhaps can be a disadvantage at times as well. We, as, as, as an industry, have been encouraging government um, to embrace some of the new technologies. We have um, usage-based insurance with telematics devices that exist in other jurisdictions and, and other places even around the world where y- how good or how uh, challenging a driver you are, well, I'll use that term uh, mm. again loosely, uh, on the roads, will determine what you're paying based on those factors that that device measures. Right now, we can only offer discounts. So if someone puts one of those in their vehicle, the only thing that really can do for them is offer them a discount as opposed to create an insurance profile that really is indicative of how well that car is being driven. And my other point about those devices is if you may have young drivers in the household, sometimes based on the data, young drivers uh, are, are not, you know, because yeah, of their lack yeah, of experience, yeah. Are, are not paying the same. They're paying substantially more. Yeah. But if you have a youngster in the house that's a very safe driver, here's a great way to prove it is if they, you have a device on the vehicle and it shows that that car is being driven regardless of who's behind the wheel, if it's mom, dad, or, or the teenager, um, and it's being driven well, then the rates will reflect that if we fully use technology. We can't currently do that, and that's a shortcoming of the system as well. Peter Kara-Georges has been with us, Director of Consumer and Industry Relations, Insurance Bureau of Canada, talking about two MPPs tabling bills ending to a, uh, aiming to end postal code discrimination. Peter, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.